JBLA Top 1580. <laughs> Happy birthday. Izzy E and all of my Virgos. My, my, my. There are a lot of them. I'm surrounded by Virgos. And it's a blessing. There he is. <laughs> yes, indeed. Joining me this morning, my colleague here on KBLA Talk 1580 has been kind enough to help us figure out a few things here and there. She's named a top California employment lawyer by the Daily Journal and one of L.A.'s most influential minority and women attorneys by the L.A. Business Journal. She's a recognized employment and labor law attorney, workplace and Title IX investigator, mediator, arbitrator, and alternative dispute resolution professional Attorney Angela Reddick Wright, good morning. Good morning, Dominique. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for checking in. So a big big news here in the state of California. I think uh, it seems like hopefully something that could um, take hold on a national level. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new measure that is supposed to help Fast food workers have more power, get more protections. Assembly Bill 257 um, has been signed into law. What are your thoughts? Is this something that you thought would happen? Is it something that surprises you? And how do you view it? Um, it it's not surprising. Um, Governor Newsom in this past few weeks and months has been taking um, bold steps to um, signing as executive orders uh, many new bills, and this particular bill has been in the works for quite a while. It started with former Assemblywoman um, Lorena Gon- Gonzalez, and when she left the Assembly, it was picked up by current Assemblyman Chris Holden from Pasadena. He continued to carry the mantle. And Dominique, um, as we've been watching in the news throughout the country, we know there have been major efforts to um, try to unionize the fast food industry, and that, you know, has had you know, lukewarm success um, throughout the country, but it hasn't been overwhelming success so far. So um, what California has done is sort of bypass the unionization efforts um, to carry forth this legislation that would essentially do or begin to do what a unionized environment might do, which is negotiate for better working conditions, um, increase wages, health benefits, and other um, work, uh, other, you know, things that help improve the work environment. So AB 257 is kind of a fast forward to try to level the playing field within the fast food industry. Yes, indeed. And, and do we think it will do that? This creates a 10-member fast food council with uh, workers represented there, employers also on that um, council, and state officials. And I mean, on the one hand, I I felt joy because I'd love to see workers, you know, get better protections. Um, Often those are the lowest paid workers of all. On the other hand, a little worried about does this create more bureaucracy? Right. Well, one of the um, controversial steps around the bill is is the creation of this fast food council 
um, which many legislators feel that it's an effort to bypass the legislature. And the legislature is saying it's our responsibility to set law, to set policy. And so now this fast food council has been given independent authority, although, you know, it has representatives from both the worker side as well as the franchise and franchisor side, and also two appointees by the governor. But many in the legislature are saying, wait a minute, that's our job to set working conditions, to set wages, and to look at policies that are best for the state of California. But already this council has hit the ground running, or the bill has allowed the council to hit the ground running by um, establishing that when it comes to wages, for example, that with franchise companies that have a 100 or more locations throughout the state, um, that they they have to set the minimum wage at $22 per hour as opposed to the current $15 an hour um, minimum wage in the state. So, you know, the, the verdict is still out, and even Chris Holden, the assemblyman that carried the bill, he asked both businesses and his fellow legislators to wait and see, and let's give the bill a chance. Mm. Interesting. You say um, they they hit the ground running with the $22 an hour um, wage for those franchises that have 100 or more locations. But I thought that was the maximum they could do was 22 an hour. I didn't realize they had already enacted that. Right. You're right, Dominique. Yes, the max is $22 an hour. So I imagine what the Fast Food Council, one of their first agenda items will be to see how to push as many employers as possible to get as close to that $22 an hour. Um, We also saw in the news recently here in L.A., there was an article in the L.A. Times which, you know, kind of gave us an update on how much it costs to rent in L.A. And if we can imagine that many of these fast food workers are renters um, because they, you know, many probably can't afford to even begin to qualify for a mortgage. So the likelihood that, you know, this council will push toward and the governor will continue to push these companies to consider the maximum minimum wage, I think is is very likely just because that's what it takes. I mean, I'm not even sure $22 an hour is enough to even, you know, be able to fully live in a county like Los Angeles or other counties like, you know, San Francisco in the Bay Area. Now, with one job, um, and most people have that are working those type of jobs, do have to have more than one. Attorney Angela Reddick Wright, my colleague, her show airs on Saturdays uh, here on KBLA, is joining me to help us understand. And I do want to dive a little deeper into this. Plus, when we come forward, Attorney Reddick Wright, I would love to know what your thoughts are about those, um, those, you know, signposts of progress in the state of California for workers who are trying to get by in this very, very expensive region. It's KVLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud, loud, loud. A great place for progressive politics. KVLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KVLA Talk 1580. And I do thank you. I want to let you know if you missed my conversation with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, we'll be reprising it uh, in the bottom half of the hour uh, after Miss Nicole Hannah-Jones was part of a delegation that went to the Vatican to talk reparations, thought it would be worth revisiting her words on this program. So if you missed that, you get a chance to check it out today um, at 8 
8.30, right after news, traffic, and sports. Talking uh, with um, attorney Angela Reddick-Wright. So, of course, wages are, you know, at the center of this new legislation, this AB 257. But it's more than that, right? It's also working conditions. So what does that include? It seems to me that uh, fast food franchise workers in particular have been in the news around um, pandemic protections and, and other things of that nature. Exactly, Dominique. Um, it's intended to look at um, health and safety conditions to make sure fast food workers um, are able to work in a safe environment and have all the appropriate equipment um, to ensure they're working in a safe environment. Um, it, I think they also will look at the types of hours that fast food workers work and, the, and how scheduling is done in this industry. One of the things that we discovered in the pandemic, both in the fast food industry and, and throughout similar industries is that many workers were working um, overtime, but um, but we're working extensive overtime without a lot of notice, and that when it came to scheduling, that folks were finding out about their schedules at the last minute or extensions or changes in their schedules at the last minute. So if you can imagine if this were a unionized environment, um, the union would be there to, to help determine what the, the working conditions would look like and what the schedules would look like and what would be required if you were to have a worker work overtime and what would be required in terms of it advance notice of, uh, of their schedule. So what this act does, and presumably what the Fast Food Council will be looking at, is also almost playing, you know, mini union in a way, um, but with representatives from the, um, the franchise side to help look at how can we make these conditions better for these workers and how can we address some issues that became really apparent and top of mind during the pandemic. You know, um, interesting you say that because every single Republican uh, in the state legislature voted against this. Every single one. And one of the things they cited was that they feel this is a backdoor to unionizing fast food workers. Do you agree? Right. Well, um, I think it certainly can open the door. I mean, well, the door was already open, right? It's just that the movement has not been successful as of yet. So this could possibly, this bill, along with the creation of the council, could possibly give win to, to that effort. Um, but the one thing to note is that the council does include representatives, for, you know, owners and representatives from the franchise, franchisor community. So it remains to be seen you know, if those individuals will be 100% complete pro-business and pro-franchise and seeking to protect their interests, or if they will be, you know, somewhat amenable, uh, amenable and will seek to find a balanced approach to um, looking at working conditions and health, health, health and safety conditions. But um, I think there is an argument to be made that this certainly makes it easier, possibly, for unionization efforts within this community. Yeah, I, to me, that's ironic because they say it like that's illegal or something. This will open the door to unions. Yeah, well, is that... Why is that a bad thing? I mean, that clearly shows you their um, perspective. We were at a point, um, I guess some would say we still are at a point, where businesses claim they're having trouble finding workers, where the um, employee instead of the employer seems to have the leverage. Um, but I'm sensing that that turning, um, even though we had some pretty good employment numbers, which 
You know, I, 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 this is one thing I think the Biden administration is actually not getting enough credit for um, is the bounce back uh, for 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 workers. Um, how do you see that that equation right now between workers having leverage and going back to business as usual? Right. Um, so definitely, post as we started to come out of, it seems we'll never be out of this pandemic, but as the world started to get back to work, so to speak, um, we definitely saw in the headlines this concept of the great resignation and uh, employers doing everything within their power to try to get people back to work. And I would say that that was the case up until early summer, right? But as the economy has been in flux and we're not sure whether we're in, you know, experiencing inflation, not experiencing inflation, experiencing I mean, a we're definitely not experiencing, experiencing inflation. <laughs> There's <laughs> right? no question. Right. What if it stays right. or goes is another issue, but yeah, but I understand right, what you're saying. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or whether we're experiencing a recession or not experiencing a recession, what the current headlines suggest is that because of that recession and because companies are having to take steps to cut positions, um, we've seen just in this last week in the tech industry, for example, there have been cuts across the board at places like Snap and other companies. So as companies are taking steps to try to, to level set their profit margins, so to speak, the um, ties are reversing. Companies are now feeling like they have the power again um, to say, you know, come back to work. Um, if you choose not to come back to work, that's okay. There's someone else who wants your position or will be laying off and you'll be included in that layoff. Or if you want to continue, we talked about before, Dominique, if you want to continue to work from home, then your salary might be reduced. So I think we're seeing a scenario now where companies are feeling more empowered and are sort of taking back the reins of determining, you know, work standards and what, you know, what they expect for people in terms of working post-pandemic or even as we endure this pandemic. So um, but we'll, I think we'll see by the end of the year is it, if it ends up being kind of a, an employer-driven economy and work environment or continue to be an employee-driven um, environment. The other thing we, we discussed before is this concept of quiet quitting. And so many employees are, you know, even with companies taking these draconian measures to get people back to work, many employees are saying, well, that's fine, I'll come to work, but I'm only going to do the bare minimum. I'm not going to go above and beyond. So we really are in a, a state of flux in terms of the American workplace and what that's going to look like as early as 2023. Yeah, well, I mean, the... Um you know, when employers think that they have the upper hand and they decide that they're going to, you know, crack down and say, OK, you got to come into work or no, we're not going to make these concessions on wages. That to me triggers quiet quitting. OK, I don't want to lose my job, so I'm just going to do the bare minimum. Um, to me, the spirit of, uh, you know, a happy, productive workplace is one where workers feel valued and where they're well compensated for what they do. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I'm a big fan of talking about the workplace and um, the workplace transform, which is what my book is about. And it really suggests that the companies that get this, that get that, is to their benefit to create great work environments, healthy and thriving work environments, 
are the companies that will survive, you know, companies that are taking draconian measures, um, I think are really going in the wrong direction, and they'll find that they won't have the best of the workforce, that they'll be struggling um, and always struggling to have the best people working for them. I mean, if, uh, according to this Gallup survey, half of American workers say they're quiet quitting. Half is a big number. Um, to me, that means that even if you, the employer, think you have the upper hand, you really don't. And you need to look at what it takes to make workers feel motivated, valued, and safe so that they will go that extra mile. Because some of us, you know, sending emails at 2 o'clock in the morning, answering emails, you know, from our bed or whatever, those days may be over. Yes. I mean, the reality, Dominique, is the the pandemic taught us so many things. And one of them is it taught us to value things other than work. Like we realize that life is short. We realize that, you know, time is precious. And so people are wanting more quality time with their families. They're wanting time to focus on other things that are important to them, other hobbies, side businesses, time to travel. And so I think the American workplace, although known throughout the world for being the hardest work, you know, work culture in the world, you know, it's changing and it's going to have to adapt. And, and I think the adapted, uh, adapting will be great because it'll create environments where people are motivated to go to work, excited to work, excited to do their jobs, but also appreciate the fact that their companies respect and value that there are other things that are important to them in addition to work. Angela Reddick, right, I know you're off to bring your wisdom and balance to uh, some workers and employers right now. Thank you for joining us, but uh, remind us where we can get your book. Um, you can go to my website, AngelaReddock-Wright.com, and there's information about the book and all the places where you can get the book online. And tune into Angela Reddick Wright every Saturday here on KBLA. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for all the great work you're out there doing. Thank you, Dominique. It's always a pleasure. And, of course, you can find the full lineup of our Saturday, Sunday, and everyday shows on KBLA1580.com. That's also where you can go, by the way, if you want to register to try to get a seat for the KBLA Public Safety Forum coming up on um, Monday, this coming Monday. And all you have to do is go to the website and answer our poll question, and you will be in the running to get an in-person seat for the conversation between Sheriff Alex Villanueva, the incumbent, and the challenger, former Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna. That's coming up on the 12th, and it should be a lively conversation. If you don't get those tickets, though, remember you can stream it. Uh, you can stream it on our website. You can listen live on the air, uh, and, uh, of course, it will be on YouTube as well. So... I mentioned uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones will be reprising that conversation in just a moment here. Um, she, of course, known for the 1619 Project. It's a book that marks the 400th anniversary of the first ship that brought Africans to the British colony of Virginia, our ancestors. And she has been um, adamant about the issue of reparations, one that has taken uh, a much louder place in the conversation than I ever imagined it would, than Dick Gregory and I ever imagined it would in our conversations about it. And the 1619 Project, which caused the backlash of the former president's 1776 uh, project, and I believe has sparked the 
all-out assault on information, on our history, on black history, on ethnic studies, on real American history, which is 360 degrees of ethnicities, uh, cultures, and economic um, strata that has been kicked off by the fear and loathing of the 1619 Project. But uh, she's right. You can't understand colonial powers, how they got so rich, if you don't understand slavery and its legacy. And she's been really clear that this, all of this information and this reframing is why this is the right moment to look at what are the harms, what are the impacts of the transatlantic uh, slave trade and what it will take to repair it. So she was among a group of reparations leaders who met with the Vatican to discuss the Catholic Church's role in the slave trade and the need for the church to deal with it, not just an apology, but actually some kind of reparations, a papal reparations commission, financial retribution for descendants of enslaved Africans. Now this, of course, um, this conversation with the Vatican really takes on the issue of reparations on a global scale, right? Because where did the church Touchdown. Where did they play a role in the colonization, uh, not just of indigenous people, as uh, the Pope has recently been speaking out about in Canada and elsewhere, but of the enslavement of people of African descent? And it is worldwide. Africa's children are scattered all throughout the globe, partly because we are world travelers and entrepreneurs and that took place before our enslavement, but partly because we were uh, enslaved. So the Global Circle for Reparation and Healing, it's a delegation of reparations leaders that went to Rome, it was Cam Howard, uh, Director of Reparations United, uh, Dr. Ron Daniels of the African National African American Reparations uh, Commission, and um, Dr. Amara Enia, who is a strategist, uh, and also Nicole Hannah-Jones. So connecting the dots between the understanding that's brought forth by the 1619 Project of this vast wealth that's built on the backs of the unpaid labor and abuse of an entire uh, group of people, uh, enslaved Africans in America. They, di they did a presentation at the Vatican around this, connecting these dots, and uh, the church agreed to disseminate this presentation, the paper that came with it throughout the Catholic Church. They say they've already admitted their role. Now they're saying they will look seriously under the guidance of Pope Francis at this presentation. And he says, uh, Bishop Teague, who met with the group, says the moment is right for this kind of presentation and that he would share it within the leaders of the Catholic Church and look at starting a process for moving forward with talks on reparations. So here we see the work of this author, professor, um, and journalist moving into real-world consequences. And uh, that's why I think the time is right to take a look at this conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones right after News, Traffic, and Sports on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward.